Hey, Tracy. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? Doing well. It's it's very cold here this morning. I just donned my heated gloves and have on base layer and took a quick walk. <laughs> heated gloves. To do I that need to mornings. get some of those. You do. Do they, uh, how, how, is it like a little battery pack or how do they work? Yeah, t- two okay. battery packs in each. Oh, nice. So like for downhill skiing, I like to have them on the high setting and they don't really last all day or long enough for me for that. So I have to keep them on medium. Um, and they're so-so as far as, I mean, they prevent terrible Raynaud's or, you know, from getting, getting yeah. really bad. Um, but now I'm not really downhill skiing so much the last few years, but I wear them for walks outside to nice. go to the grocery store driving, you know, just it's kind of, it feels like a luxury, but yes. I'll you know, bet. expensive items, but hey, they work and I don't come back in from a walk with, you know, significant Renaud's event. Oh yeah. And there's something to be said for comfort, you know? Yes. Um, okay. So you are the only one here, but, uh, we have a couple of questions. So let me answer those first. And then anything from you is welcomed. Sounds good. Okay. So, uh, first question here, what are the pitfalls and how harmful is sucralose? I've had good luck using Vitargo plain flavored for my cycling workouts with a little element mixed for the electrolytes. However, the other Vitargo flavors contain sucralose, and I am wondering how much is too much to have a negative to have negative consequences on digestion and the microbiome. So the short answer here is that it's difficult to say. Long-term uh, very controlled studies looking at any kind of artificial sweetener, whether it's sucralose or something else, um, are hard to do in human subjects. Given the small amounts of these sweeteners that are typically consumed, because they are so, so potent, I think that there are much bigger factors that impact the gut microbiota than artificial s- sweeteners, including sucralose. So unless I, you know, you do an experiment and you find that you have consistent GI distress every time you are consuming something with sucralose in it, I personally wouldn't worry about it too much especially in the context of an otherwise whole food nutrient-dense diet that's supportive of, of um, gut health, which I know this, this person who asked the question has that kind of diet. But to answer the question, when it comes to sucralose, many of the studies are in animals. And uh, it's hard to you know look at GI distress per se in an animal model. Um, but uh, the, the animal... Um, models do, uh, typically add sucralose to their water. Um, so the, the rodents in, in this case are typically consuming probably quite a lot more than somebody would be consuming from a sports drink, even with, even if the animals are consuming sucralose within the FDA approved acceptable daily intake, which is uh, five milligrams per kilogram per day in humans. Now, how much you're going to be getting in something like Vitargo, a serving of Vitargo, I, I don't think that they actually say, um, you know, this amount of sucralose uh, on the label, but that's a pretty hefty amount of, of um, sweetener. 
there is some animal evidence. Uh, we'll link to this study in particular on the show notes. So that was titled gut microbiome response to sucralose and its potential role in inducing liver inflammation in mice. Um, let me actually make sure that this is the right study. Um, yes, no, this is the one that looked at the gut microbiota. Um, so this one found that sucralose could potentially create a more pro-inflammatory milieu in the gut with the growth of more potentially inflammatory gut bugs, um, inflammatory gene expression, and also more pro-inflammatory gut metabolites. There is some data in humans uh, here, for example, the short-term impact of sucralose consumption on the metabolic responses and gut microbiome of healthy adults. I like that this was in healthy adults. Um, so this study showed that seven days of sucralose consumption at 780 milligrams per day did not impact the gut microbiome of healthy adults. Now you could argue that the effects might be different if you're consuming sucralose long-term. But again, if we're talking about the occasional maybe a couple of times a week, sucralose intake um, in a small amount in, a, in the context of a sports drink, I wouldn't be too concerned about what it could potentially do to the gut. Unless, of course, again, you experiment and find that, you know, the plain Vitargo is much better versus the, the Vitargo with sucralose just kind of, you know, set your gut off. Uh, again, this is especially in the context of a diet and lifestyle that's otherwise supportive of gut health. On the other hand, if you were consuming sucralose in a larger amount on a daily basis, uh, I think that that might be problematic. We don't have the human data to support that, um, but certainly there's some animal studies that that um, suggest it might be might be a bad thing. Question two: My phenotype is AG um, for. Actually, I should put this into context. So this. Um, link was to an article on blood pressure, MTHFR, uh, which is a genetic variant and riboflavin. So my uh, MTHFR phenotype is AG and I've been mildly hypertensive for years, especially when measured in the doctor's office. Wondering if how I might dial in folate and riboflavin to theoretically nudge blood pressure lower um, and if it even makes sense to attempt to do so. So looking at the evidence, I am skeptical of how much the MTHFR polymorphism impacts blood pressure. And there are many other arguably more significant contributing epigenetic factors to hypertension, especially if blood pressure is really only high when measured in the doctor's office. I wouldn't think that that's going to be particularly impacted by, say, riboflavin or folate status. However, if you take some at-home measurements, and, you know, in, in different contexts throughout the day and find that blood pressure uh, is more or less consistently elevated, then that's definitely something that I would be addressing, um, both maybe, you know, through through riboflavin and, and folate and other ways as well. Uh, but regardless of genetics, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to dial in folate and riboflavin intake and see what happens. Um, if nothing else, you're going to end up eating a more nutrient-dense diet, which is never a bad thing. So how to do this with uh, real food. For riboflavin, the best sources are going to be organ meat, regular muscle meat, uh, eggs, yogurt, leafy green vegetables, mushrooms, legumes, and nuts. 
So for riboflavin, I would be shooting for three to five milligrams a day. And uh, it is worth noting that high fat diets can increase riboflavin needs. So a serving, uh, or to, to give you an, an idea of how much riboflavin is in these these different foods, um, there's going to be three milligrams of riboflavin in four ounces of liver. Uh, there's 1.5 milligrams in six ounces of steak, 0.8 milligrams of riboflavin in six ounces of salmon, 0.3 milligrams in an ounce of almonds, 0.3 milligrams in one egg, one whole egg, and 0.6 milligrams in one cup of yogurt. So again, you're shooting for three to five milligrams a day. Maybe on the higher side, uh, that five milligrams, if um, you know there's maybe a genetic variant that suggests that you need more riboflavin. For folate, uh, best sources are leafy greens, legumes, especially liver, uh, sorry, uh, especially lentils and also liver. So, uh, you know, as far as what you're looking for, um, probably three servings a day of um, leafy greens, liver and or legumes. You can kind of mix and match however you want. With fresh vegetables, I would definitely try to eat them within a handful of days of getting them. Cooking also degrades folate um, and storage of vegetables degrades folate. Folate does seem to be more stable in legumes and liver, even if the liver is frozen. So um, that that's a good thing. Um, I would, going back to the vegetables, try to get your folate from fresh vegetables versus frozen. The Again, the storage, including, including the freezing process, does decrease the amount of folate. Um, sprouted lentils might be a good choice as well. They cook up really easily, um, and it's possible that the sprouting process could make some nutrients, including folate, more bioavailable, although I haven't actually seen evidence to support that. Um, ideally, I would spread your folate intake out over the course of meals versus trying to get it all at once. And um, leafy greens have also uh, also have a lot of naturally occurring nitrates, which are converted to nitric oxide by nitrate reducing bacteria in the oral cavity. And this may be an extra benefit for hypertension. Um, as a side note, I would also for anyone generally speaking, but definitely if you are, um, you know, dealing with hypertension, avoid conventional mouthwashes that have, uh, especially ingredients like chlorhexidine, chlorhexidine, um, because they can basically, um, decrease populations of those good nitrate producing bacterial in the oral cavity, which may, um, you know, have negative consequences for nitric oxide production and thus, uh, blood pressure. The other thing you could consider would be a B-complex to complement your diet. The Thorn Basic B-complex, I think, has like 10 milligrams of riboflavin, um, which is plenty and also a decent amount of folate. So if you wanted to, um, you know, just for a period of time to complement your diet with B-complex, um, that would be another experiment to run. Although I do think it's it's pretty reasonable um, to get enough folate and riboflavin from your diet through those foods that I mentioned. Um, and we'll put all of those foods and even the, um, the specific amounts in the show notes for you. All right. So that's all I have. Um, looks like a handful of other people joined. So welcome, please feel free to, um, unmute yourselves if you have any, any questions.
Morning, Megan. This is Joe. Um, Hi, Joe. Dialed in a little late, so I missed the first question there. <laughs> On the, but I'll um, I'll listen to the show notes and pick it up yeah. from there. Sure. The, the, the cliff notes is, um, in, in your context with the amount that you would be consuming, I'm not concerned. There's some animal data suggesting that, you know, very long-term intake, um, of higher amounts over the course of time may cause a more like pro-inflammatory, um, milieu in the gut. But in, in your case, um, especially in the context of, you know, a diet and lifestyle that's supportive of gut health, um, not, not concerning. There's even a human study here that looked at, it was short-term impact, um, which is typically what you're going to find in the human studies, but it really found no difference in the gut microbiome of healthy, uh, healthy adults consuming sucralose every day. Yeah. It was interesting because, um, I was actually just after I submitted the question just last week on Thursday, I was listening to a different podcast with, um, Lane Norton and he was talking about some of the actual short-term studies were showing that actually, I gotta get it right though, but basically it can in, increase butyrate production. And I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, but again, like his, his take was that there are no solutions, there's only trade-offs, right? So you would potentially get a little bit of a, what I think you call it like an insulin spike because it's artificial, but the trade-off is that potentially it could or would increase butyrate production. But, you know, just around, I thought that was a very interesting comment, but they were talking about artificial sweeteners. Um, and I had have had successful luck switching to Vitargo away from like the maltodextrin fructose-based um, carbohydrate drinks, mm -hmm. the plain flavor just gets a little bit bland over time. Um, so I thought, is there a harmful side effect of using it, of using a sucralose-based version of it periodically? But Yeah, I, I would say no. And again, okay. I, I do agree that there are probably trade-offs um, and those trade-offs are going to be in like person dependent too. Um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that you know, you're going to get an insulin spike, um, from this, the sucralose, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if, if you're consuming Vitargo, which is a carbohydrate source with a little bit of sucralose, you know, the insulin spike that you're getting from the Vitargo is going to be way more than you would get be getting from a little bit of sucralose. Um, yeah. and, and you know, you should be getting an insulin spike with carbohydrate consumption as well. So in your, in your case, and generally speaking for healthy individuals, not consuming a ton of this stuff, not concerned. Okay. Yeah, good question though. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, sorry, no video. I just got out of the shower. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. It's you know, we bit earlier here. Um question uh so if someone had really high level estrogen um is the best way to combat that with progesterone or are there other options 
Um, sorry, Marina, you cut out there for a second. Oh. Can you repeat? If if someone had high levels of estrogen. Yes. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Uh, is the best way to combat that with balancing out the progesterone? And if that's done and it's still high, what are the next options? So, uh, yes, I would say balancing out progesterone is important because estrogen dominance can come from just too much estrogen, generally speaking, or estrogen in relationship to progesterone. But I would also be looking at and thinking about how to properly like detoxify the estrogen that you do have to make sure it's not Mm -hmm. recirculating. So the gut, gut health is really important for that. Um, the, uh, you know, your, your liver's detoxification systems are important for, for that. So cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, seeds, sprouts, sweating, stuff like that. Um, making sure your bowel movements are regular and complete. Um, you know, those would, those would probably be like gut health, yeah liver detoxification support. Um, and, you know, of course avoiding, things like environmental estrogens and stuff like that, which can kind of add to the overall estrogen burden. Um, you know, that's going to be a drop in the bucket compared to what's going on with, you know, how much your body is producing naturally speaking. But when it comes to, um, you know, like the, the overall burden, toxic environmental, toxic burden on your liver, those environmental estrogens do play a role as well. Right. Um, And then estrogen is going to be coming from, largely, um, you know, uh, excess estrogen could be coming from fat tissue as well. So working on body composition should also mm. help with, you know, decreasing overall estrogen burden. But to answer your question, I would be, I would be going at it from like multiple directions. So supporting progesterone to make sure that comes up, but also, um, you know, making sure that you're, you're, um, properly detoxifying and getting rid of yeah. the estrogen that you do have. Right. Is there a direct marker for liver function? Like, you know, like GFR for kidneys? Is there anything similar to that for the liver? So you have liver enzymes, um, ALT, ASG, AST, which are actually mostly in the liver, but they're also in muscles. So if you, you know, have mm-hmm. a heart, he- heavy workout before you do a blood test, sometimes we see those enzymes increase. Um, there's GGT as well, which is probably a more specific marker, um, as far as I've seen for, for liver health, um, and things like glutathione status, which is an antioxidant related to detoxification, but there isn't one particular marker or even a group of markers. That's going to be really sensitive and specific to, you know, um, liver, like how well your liver is detoxifying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's more, it's more looking at symptoms and, you know, looking at environmental exposures, which we all have and doing the right things to support detoxification. So did I hear that correct? That high liver enzymes can also be related to muscle damage. Yes. That interestingly enough, I just had some blood work done and I had high ST values, but I don't drink and I don't take Tylenol. (laughs) <laughs> right, so yeah. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Probably some muscle catabolism, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. So if you did a heavy workout, um, you know, in the 48 hours beforehand, it's it's probably muscle, muscle damage, muscle catabolism. Um, some people who are really active just walk around with liver enzymes that are on the higher side. And that's probably due to just kind of the state of always remodeling, you know, skeletal muscle. Oh, that's 
So a follow-up to last week, you talked about NSAIDs and there was a question about uh, gut health with mm -hmm. short-term and long-term use, I think. And, you know, we discussed ways to mitigate it and what else to take along with it and, you know, the dose and the duration and all that. But what is it that they actually do that can be harmful to the gut? What might be the symptoms um, that you would see? two two broad categories as far as I know, and there, there's probably more, but um, they can have an effect on the gut microbiome or biota if um, okay. Um, can you hear me, Tracy? Yes. Okay. Um, so an effect on the gut microbiota and also an effect on um, basically the the inflammation of the gut lining or the integrity of the gut lining it can cause inflammation, cause damage to the gut lining. So, um, you know, again, the, the dose and duration makes the poison, but definitely, you know, problematic. And as far as like, okay. uh, what symptoms you would be seeing, I would say, you know, for most people it would probably be more related to, um, you know, well, anything that could be related to gut inflammation, but probably more like a more of a diarrhea phenotype versus a constipated phenotype. Um, you know, maybe some, some issues around specific foods that you hadn't had issues with before. If there was some, you know, extra inflammation and, and, and um, gut hyperpermeability, that could certainly be the case too. Gut, gut pain, discomfort, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I haven't taken any, and probably over a year at this point. And there's been a couple of times I've been tempted to, yeah. and I didn't want to do anything that could impact gut healing or, well, I say that and I was, my next question was going to be commenting that I've started drinking more again, which I know that's <laughs> impacting gut healing. But on this note <laughs> topic, um, yeah, I've, I've been very hesitant to take them and I haven't had any significant need. Whereas in years past, I mean, we've talked about the, the really terrible headaches I would sometimes get, whether they were heat or exercise induced, but that would be usually three ibuprofen every four hours for a day and a half, probably, mm -hmm. um, to just to, to take the edge off even. And I know as I was going through gut problems, like that wasn't helping anything. I didn't do that frequently, but even then, you know, diarrhea has never been my main issue. At, at that point, it was sporadic. It was mixed in with other issues, but it's never been diarrhea dominant. So I don't know if that was impacting my, my symptoms or not. Yeah, it's certainly possible, you know, and there, there's always going to be trade-offs and sometimes the, 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 the most favorable trade-off is to get rid of the headache, you know? Right. Um, but I'm, I'm glad it, it hasn't been something or they haven't been something that you've, you've needed, you know, yeah. in the recent past. And on, on the other note, I have been drinking more lately um, and I've started, I've had some more beer, so gluten and have not noticed any, any ill effects from that. Whereas sometimes I've had some more food gluten also, and depending on what it is and how much I, I do seem to notice um, almost at, like once after having a piece of pizza, like an acute response, which I haven't had through all of this elimination reintroduction, nothing has caused an acute reaction, which is 
mm-hmm. much easier to recognize. And not that I ever wanted that, but at least it makes it more straightforward. Yeah. It's always been the, oh, this happens a week or two later. What caused what? Multiple changes. Um, but I did seem to have an, a, an acute response after pizza, though I'd been drinking beer and I'd had other food, you know, noodles and some gluten type of things every every few days. It's not part of my daily, what I eat now and I haven't mm-hmm. eaten bread, but it's becoming more regular. So I guess thoughts on that, what certain types of gluten more problematic than others? And could some of the response be, as I'm just increasing my amounts, body getting used to it? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I would say, you know, d- depending on the kind of reaction you're getting, if you've noticed it with gluten versus, you know, foods that don't have gluten, um, gluten is pretty tough on the gut lining, you know, um, based off of what it's doing. So, uh, you know, I, I would say that it's probably going to be, you know, a gluten issue versus your body getting used to the gluten. Um, the only way that I would say, at least off the top of my head that I would think that maybe, um, it would be more of a getting used to type thing is, um, you know, wheat has fructans in it and fructans can cause some GI distress because they're FODMAP. So mostly it's going to be the, the gas bloating type phenotypes. Um, so if that was what you were experiencing, then it could just be like wheat, the, the, the wheat and the fructans and the wheat. Um, but I don't, I honestly don't know a lot about the gluten in beer and how much is in there. It's possible that the fermentation is doing something that's allowing you to, you know, you, you probably know way more about this than I do, but it's possible that the fermentation is, um, you know, is, is allowing you to not react like you would to pizza, um, or other, other, um, you know, gluten rich foods. Uh, it could have been in the pizza, a combination of things. So maybe the gluten plus, you know, other stuff that would otherwise be okay. The combination of those things just weren't great for your gut. Um, you know, where, where the wheat comes from probably plays a role too. There's some hypothesis that like glyphosate or, you know, the, the chemicals like Roundup that are sprayed on heavily, heavily sprayed crops, like, like wheat, um, can be part of the reason why people don't, don't tolerate it well here. Whereas people can, sometimes people can go to Europe and tolerate wheat just fine. So I think there's a lot of contributing factors. Um, if you suspect gluten being a problem, um, you know, I would, maybe the, the answer isn't to completely avoid it, but just to be careful about your overall load, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking it's, it's an overall load thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, except for the one time with the pizza, there's been nothing that's been a a clear cut. Oh, I, you know, I eat this and this happens. Mm -hmm. Um, but I I think when, when things are working well, my body and I'm less stressed, sleeping well, all the things like body can handle more. And, and I'm from what I know about, you know, beer making and since we do make our own beer, um, I I don't think the gluten content, I, I haven't looked anything up on this. I'm sure it's out there is, is going to be nearly as high and maybe the fermentation also plays a role. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, again, I've had udon noodles and some other, other solid food gluten type of things and I've not had a reaction. Um, so yeah, well, that's a good sign. You know, it doesn't mean that it's in large amounts over time consistently, it wouldn't cause a problem. Um, and Mm -hmm. you know, in theory, 
I, I'm, I'm always a fan of like just kind of going with your gut and how you're feeling. That's really the best way to do an elimination reintroduction diet. But, um, you know, in theory, small amounts of gluten for a very sensitive individual could cause, cause problems that you would only see chronically, um, and not see more acutely because of the more low grade chronic inflammation over time. But again, you know, if we're talking, um, you know, having it occasionally being careful about the dose and also what you're consuming around it. So for some people, you know, it's, it's not just the, the load of gluten in a particular meal, but it's also, you know, what other meal components could be inflammatory to your gut when you're consuming something that has gluten, um, you know, so processed sugar, um, you know, uh, bad, bad seed oils, stuff like that. Yeah, for some people sense. it's, you know, it's, it's other potential food intolerances like eggs. Um, you know, they, they kind of don't mix well with foods that might be iffy, especially for the health of the, the gut lining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had read before about, uh, the, the spraying of, of wheat and most of our crops here, how different that is the standards are than in Europe and why our the processing of our foods, then they can hold so much more gluten, like adding vital wheat gluten to things. And yeah. we make breads bigger and fuller of everything. Yeah. And so the difference between eating it here versus in other countries and the difference between eating it now and 50 years ago. Yes. Yeah. So would that, would that mean that potentially non-hybridized grains even if they contain gluten, would probably be better than the modern hybridized hybridized grains. So people mm -hmm. like fine, fine corn flour, fine yep. corn wheat is probably I don't more tolerable than I guess modern hybridized hybridized grains. Yes, I, I would say very, very much so. Um, not for everyone. Some people are going to be yeah. reactive to gluten all the time. Um, but I think, and I've seen this in a couple of, of people, um, you know, those more ancient grains that still contain wheat, um, not the more modernized hybridized stuff, uh, does seem to be much less problematic, if not, not problematic. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I still haven't had any of the stool consistency issues come back up. Good. Um, very occasional of mixed in, like a, some here and there sporadic diarrhea. And that's been probably since July of any significance. Well, no, after the pizza, there was a bit of that. I mean, it wasn't full on diarrhea, but softer. What's still the the ongoing that that gets better and then kind of goes downhill is, is constipation. Um and that's harder to, to tell and with slow motility and, you know, what did I eat a few days ago versus a week ago or how much sleep and sugar and, you know, that's been a harder thing to, to trace a, a cause to, but the, the stool consistency not being what it was a year ago is, has been life changing. So that's, that's great. Awesome. <laughs> that's really great. Tracy, remind me, um, have we tried a motility agent for you? No. So like, like a motility activator or something like that. Ibaragast. I, I don't, well, um, no, not Ibaragast. I don't think, I think we talked about that. 
I think there's supposed to be a motility activator in some of the healthy gut stuff I was taking. Oh yeah, ginger. Probably okay. not enough though. Okay. But no, that I don't think we tried some... anything specific. Okay. That might be something to consider. Um, I've had some people respond really well to like they're called motility agents or or prokinetics, basically that help um help with motility in a in a different way than just you know looking at the say health of your gut lining or your your microbiome. Um, so they're helping with like the actual like process of like the, the, the physical process of motility, um, okay. from top to bottom. So my favorite one right now is, is motility activator, but there are a lot of ones out there by integrative therapeutics. Um, so, you know, I, I know, I, I think recently you started taking the BioGaia probiotic again, but, mm-hmm. um, maybe give that a little bit more time if you want to. And then, uh, you know, it might be an interesting, interesting experiment to run to see if that moves the needle further, um, versus just probiotic. And then if it does, that gives us a little bit more insight into what's going on. Mm -hmm. I did a motility testing done a a while ago, a couple years ago. Um, and I don't think it showed anything outstanding, like on the slow end of normal kind of thing, but Mm -hmm. okay. Who'd you say motility activator is by integrated therapeutics. And is that anything we could get on Willivate? Yep. Okay. I'm probably going to be scheduling with you soon too. I finally got blood work results back and submitted them. So great. I have one more hormone follow-up question. Sure. Okay. So if the choices are compounded bioidentical or um, like biomatrix, which I don't know what category that is, um, is there, are there pros and cons to each of those? I might have to come back to you with an answer. Um, <laughs> okay. Bio, biomatrix, is, is the biomatrix the, the progesterone that you were taking? Yeah, that I, that I was taking for years. Yeah, that's the, it's just, I, it's, it's natural, you know, it's not synthetic. So, yeah. But then, but I've always wondered, like, how does that compare to when they, so compound a bio the bioidentical stuff which i've always been a little confused about yeah is that all also natural or is it a quote unquote bioidentical compound of synthetics sure um so what i can tell you now is that i have seen the you know compounded or not bioidentical hormones be much more potent than the, the mm-hmm. biomatrix stuff. Right. Um, but I'll have to get back to you on the rest. So let me, okay. let me write that down. And are, you know, I guess what's, what's, are you asking about effectiveness? Are you asking about what uh, in particular? Yeah, I guess uh, effectiveness. And then of course, like there's all kinds of problems and negative side effects with synthetic. So, I mean, I know, I know for sure, I don't want to go that route, but if I'm going to go back on some kind of HRT, cause I stopped taking the progesterone okay. and it didn't, it didn't go well. Cause now my estrogen huh. is sky high. So <laughs> yeah. And a so too, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just trying to figure out 
which what's the best direction to go if I should try something new or just go back to what I was doing before because I'm also I mean I was doing biometrics for uh, like seven eight years mm-hmm. and I'm a lot closer to uh, perimenopause now than I was then yeah so effectiveness wise for you it might be worth you know, you, you could always try the biomatrix again. You know, it's, it's relatively easy to source versus something yeah. that's compounded that you have to get a prescription for. Um, right. so you could always try that one, you know, see how it works for you and then consider switching if needed. Um, uh, but I, but effectiveness wise, based off of, you know, where you are in your, your life, um, it mm-hmm. might be worth considering going more of the bioidentical HRT, you know, well, more I'm seeing, I'm seeing the, oh, be this afternoon. So I'll, oh, okay. I'll see, I'll see what options they have for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thanks. Of course. It's somewhat related to that. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going the route of a compounded, it's called estrol, estrol, E-S-T-R-I-O-L, um, which is a metabolite of estrogen instead of just a straight out estrogen cream that either was going to be by a prescription, the estrogen cream because of my insurance and where I could get it, not having to be compounded probably would have been like $2 a month between two and $4 a month. Whereas the compounded one is going to be at very still reasonable, like 17 or $18 a month. Um, but it, it's that, that was the top recommendation from my, from my gynecologist. And mm-hmm. do you have any, any thoughts on that? any input? No, I'm more than happy. If, if okay. you have any specific questions, I'm more than happy yeah. to look into it, but I would definitely defer to the expert on the, the hormone replacement. Yeah, sure. No, that makes it's, sense. Her question oral. just reminded me of it. So I pulled up our messages with my, with my doctor and she said either is very safe, you know, but the other is just, you can think of it crudely as a weaker form of estrogen eh, that could provide us much or more symptom relief as the actual estradiol cream. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so it's some of my concern was starting to, it's what? Oral? No, it's a, it's a cream. Oh, it is a cream. Okay. Vaginal cream. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I may start systemic estrogen, something oral in, I think February is my next appointment. Um, with the endocrinologist to get blood work done if it's still low at that point. Okay. So I had the IUD removed and slowly gaining weight. So working on gaining weight, you know, and if those two things, if, if that helped, if that is part of the reason for the low estrogen, you know, if it's gone up some by then great, if not, that'll been a decent amount of time with pretty low estrogen at, you know, premenopausal age, they would encourage taking a more systemic Mm -hmm. treatment. Sounds like a good plan. But some of my question for her is is starting this now. I mean, whether now with the cream or in six months with something systemic, just being, you know, 42 years old, is that too young to start this? And how long am I going to need to be taking hormones? And what's, you know, it's safe for 10 to 15 years. What am I going to need to be on them for 20 or 30 if I'm starting at this age? Yeah, no, that, that's a great, great question. And I, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably, I'm less equipped to, to answer, yeah. answer anything like that. Um, sure. but, uh, you know, I think especially with the compounded bioidentical stuff, um, you know, 
it's, it's, there was a lot of talk about it being problem, like really problematic and, and unsafe before. And now based off of, you know, the, the data that we have and what's available, um, I, I think that it's, it seems to be quite safe, especially if you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're balancing all of your hormones as, as they, they should be. Um, did I ever, did I ever tell you about, um, and Marina, you might be interested in this too. Um, what is it called? Hmm. What is they were on Peter Tia's podcast a while back. Um, Estrogen Matters is the name of the book. Um, it's Abram Blooming and Carol uh Travers. And uh we can link to the the podcast they did with Atia as well. Um but they were basically talking about the, the history of HRT and you know what we thought about it then and, and what we actually know about it now. Oh interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah I read the XX brain recently. Um you know I'm not sure how on board I am with all her theories. Uh, um, oh, I can't remember her name. Um, who, who, sorry, whose brain. series? Um, XX Brain. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember who wrote it. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was interesting. And I think there was a lot of useful information in it, but that was sort of where the whole mediterranean diet concept came from i mean not that i haven't thought about it before but it it resurfaced through that book Um, but she also was she was very uh insistent that gluten is a non-issue like unless you have celiac disease and i'm like "Eh, my body says otherwise (laughs) not not sure i buy that Yeah, it was, but I think some interesting things could still be gleaned from it. Who was the podcast by? Oh, it's a book. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, if you just put it in Amazon, it'll, it'll come up. Sure. But Megan, you mentioned a podcast that was talking about. It was on Peter's Peter, the drive. It's called the drive. And it was um, episode 42. So it was a while ago. Back in February 2019. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask Joe how his estrogen was doing, but he left already. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was thinking he was feeling left out and clearly he was because he failed. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. Estrogen is important for males as well. True. They still have to. They still have to balance it. Yep, exactly. Most of them don't know that, though. Most men. I mean, (laughs) they're like, "What? I have estrogen? What do you mean?" Okay. Well, that's all I have. 
Okay, yeah. Tracy, anything else from you? No, not today. All right. Well, thank you both for joining. Hope you have Bye. a great day, guys. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.